Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Radical is released every Tuesday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episode, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. Campsite Media. How far are you willing to go? Because, like, most of the people never, definitely never talked to me. They never talked to people that knew me. So now they have what they think is the truth, and they have run with that. In November of 2021, Johnny Coffin got a call from a man in federal prison. Johnny is the lead producer of this podcast, and the call came to him months before he convinced me to help him do more reporting, to host the podcast and make the story my own. Johnny had been filing open records requests, looking for problems with Imam Jamil's prosecution, and talking to this man in prison, an interesting man, a man who over the course of his life has gone by at least three names, Otis Jackson, Silas Muhammad, and James Santos. I'm going to call him Otis Jackson. On the phone, Otis was serious, didn't really joke much, and he sounded like a smart guy. He said violence was a part of his childhood, and he moved around a lot as a kid. I floated from family member to family member to different people, you know what I mean? Until I got old enough to go my own way and do my own thing, you know? When Otis finished high school, he worked in construction. But before long, he decided he could make more money hustling. I'm not a violent person, but I can get violent if I'm put in a particular situation. I try to reason, but sometimes it goes beyond reason. Otis's rap sheet is long and goes back to at least 1991. He's been charged with battery, armed robbery, credit card fraud, and Grand Theft Auto. Right now, he's in federal prison in the Midwest, set to get out in a few years. Otis is 49, black, shaved head, at least in the photos we have, and he's around five foot seven. He has some scars. There's a dark mark on his forehead, a callus that some Muslims get from praying. Otis, 
he brings us to another chapter of this story, and in particular, to yet another way of thinking about and understanding the truth. I've encountered truths that were tucked away just beyond my reach, and truths that were wrapped up in coats of fiction. With this guy, there was no secrecy or subterfuge or anything like that, really. It was the opposite, in fact. For more than 20 years, he has been blasting at full volume that he is the one who shot deputies Ricky Kenshin and Algernon English. But no one was really listening. I've gotten away with murder, for real. You know how some people say, man, you get away with murder. I've literally gotten away with murder. So, um, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. It's not like that these people are not aware. It's just that they don't want to accept it because, you know, most of the time, like most human beings, if we do something wrong, we don't want to be told that we're wrong. And they convicted the wrong guy and sent the wrong guy to prison for life for something that another guy did. When you track Otis's story, it's not impossible that he could have gone overlooked for years, ignored. Because someone confessing to a murder, willingly submitting themselves to at least a long prison term, and maybe even the death penalty, it just seems weird, hard to believe. Until maybe it is believed, taken for truth by the right people, people with influence. They recruit the power of big institutions and what seemed before like conventional wisdom is suddenly unsettled. So we had to investigate Otis's story for ourselves because it might get a Mam Jamil out of prison. From Campside Media, Tinderfoot TV, and iHeart Podcasts, this is Radical. I'm Mosi Secret. Episode 6 Confession. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At the time of the shootout in the West End, March of 2000, Otis Jackson was on parole for a battery conviction he had picked up in Nevada. He'd allegedly shot a guy after an argument over a dog. Otis was allowed to stay at his mother's house in Atlanta because he was wearing an ankle monitor. Each day after work, Otis was supposed to go straight home to his mom's. Basically, he had a curfew. But a few weeks after the shootout, and after Imam Jamil was arrested for it, Otis was sent back to Nevada for violating his parole, and he was incarcerated at the Clark County Detention Center in Las Vegas. When I got back to Nevada, I immediately called the authorities there. And actually, to be honest, they didn't want to hear it. I, had to, I called maybe about eight times. Finally, an FBI agent went out to the prison to listen to what Otis had to say, and he confessed to shooting Deputy Kenjin and Deputy English. This was months before Ma'am Jamil's trial would start in earnest. I just told him, look, man, you guys got the wrong guy in jail, you know, so I don't want anybody in jail or in prison for something that I did. You, you know, arrested the wrong guy. So here's what happened. And he was definitely not interested in that. He told me, man, we got to open the shit case here with Jamil, so there's no need for you to be involved in this. After Otis confessed, he was moved to solitary confinement. The guards put a sign on his door that said, Cop Killer, and they started giving him a hard time. He was playing with the food, they were calling me Cop Killer. Sometimes they would let me out for showers, sometimes they wouldn't. And when they did, sometimes they would put me in a shower and lock me in a shower, and I would be in handcuffs in that shower for hours without being able to actually shower because I'm still in handcuffs. So, man, listen, I'll, I'll, a lot of crazy stuff happened. A few months after he spoke to the FBI, Otis wrote a statement. Not sure if he put it in the mail or just handed it off to a guard, but it said, I, Otis Milton Jackson, was just trying to help a brother, not knowing it would give me the case. I love Jamil, but I did not do anything. I killed no one, and Jamil killed no one. I'm so sorry for making the FBI feel as if I did this. Robert McBurney, the lead prosecutor in Imam Jamil's case, he learned of Otis's confession. And because of procedural rules around potentially exculpatory evidence like this, McBurney had to tell the defense team. Otis's retraction just a few months after he officially confessed, that would be a problem for the defense if they called him to testify. But Jack Martin, Imam Jamil's lead defense lawyer, he suggested he wasn't too concerned about that. Otis said he withdrew his confession because he'd been thrown in solitary confinement a decision that a jury could make sense of. The investigator for the defense, Watani Tahemba, he interviewed Otis. Martin remembered the report that Watani gave the defense team. He, you know, described Otis Jackson as giving us a, a, a consistent story, 
But you never know about somebody where you know, I don't know whether to believe him or not, but that's what his story makes sense. Not sure whether he's telling the truth, but the story makes sense. That would have to be good enough. Remember, they only needed a reasonable doubt. Martin was ready to call Otis as a witness, but then Robert McBurney, the prosecutor, he got in touch with Martin. McBurney told me, listen, Jack, he was on probation at the time. He had an ankle monitor on him, and we can prove that he wasn't in the West End area that night. McBurney said he had data from Otis's ankle monitor that showed Otis was at home, at his mom's house. And it would have been physically impossible for him to have shot the deputies. And he said, I just hope you call him because we'll be able to, to blow him out of the water with that ankle bracelet. I accepted that as being, I didn't think McBurney would lie to me about that. I accepted that and I thought, well, this is a death penalty case. If we call some witness who blows up on us and the stand, that's going to hurt us on the death penalty if we have to go there. If the defense called Otis and then the prosecution proved he was lying, the jury wouldn't trust the defense team during the sentencing phase when they were asking the jury to spare Ma'am Jamil's life. So I made the decision, or we made a decision not to call him. The jury never heard Otis's confession, and Ma'am Jamil was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. After Ma'am Jamil's initial appeals failed in the Georgia Supreme Court, his lawyers filed a habeas corpus appeal the final shot, at least to the courts, to get him out of prison. The legal team got a deposition from Otis, who was out of solitary at this point, and he again confessed to the shooting, under oath. In February of 2007, after Imam Jamil had already spent about five years in solitary confinement, there was a hearing focused on the possibility that Otis shot the deputies. It was in Tattnall County, Georgia, where Imam Jamil was being held at Reedsville Prison. At this hearing, a founder of the company that made the technology uses a part of Otis's angle monitor, he testified. He said the data actually did not show definitively that Otis was at home at the time of the shootout. This was big. It meant that Jack Martin had bad information when he decided against calling Otis to the stand during the trial. It meant Otis could have been anywhere the night of March 16, 2000, including in the West End behind the trigger of a semi-automatic rifle. So with all this information in mind, when Otis told my producer Johnny his story about what happened that night in the West End, we had to listen. Um, I went there, I went to work first, and um, I found out that I wasn't on the schedule to work. That was like a free pass for Otis to do whatever he wanted that day, under the guise that he was working, to be out in the world, at least before he had to be back home in the evening. Otis decided to run some errands. I was moving some guns from one place to another and a bulletproof vest. So I put the guns in the trunk and I, I put, I had one gun on me, a nine millimeter, and I drove to the West End community. Otis said that at the time, he was one of the leaders of the almighty Vice Lord Nation, an organization, law enforcement would call it a gang, that was founded in Chicago back in the day. Otis was planning to get a branch of the Vice Lords going in Atlanta, and while he was running errands on March 16th, his plan was to visit Imam Jamil to give him a heads up. The Weston Masjid, under Imam Jamil, had armed security patrols, 
and Imam Jamil had developed a reputation over the years for pushing out drug dealers. Otis just wanted to stop by to say, hey, we're going to be moving into the area, but we don't want any business with your community. Otis said he parked his car outside the masjid, and the brothers told him Imam Jamil wasn't around. He stuck around for prayer, and he chatted with the brothers afterward. Eventually, he realized it was getting late, and so he walked across the street to Imam Jamil's store, hoping he'd maybe shown up. But the lights were off, and the doors were locked. As Otis was walking away, the deputies pulled up. They got out and told Otis to put up his hands. Otis said he tried to explain himself, said he wasn't breaking into the store or anything, that he was looking for the owner. But one of the deputies had already drawn his gun and was screaming out orders. So it's like two alpha males, neither one of us are, are, are backing down. And before I knew it, it just escalated. I knew I had a gun on me. I'm on house arrest. I got, so this is going to send me right back to prison. It just wasn't happening. And... I did what I felt that I had to do at the time. I pulled out my gun and fired. Both deputies fired back, and Otis was hit in the arm. He ran to his car, which was parked across the street, with a trunk full of guns, remember, and he grabbed an M14, a semi-automatic rifle. Otis said that Kenshin was being more aggressive than English, who was calling for help on his radio, so Otis went hard after Kenshin who tried to take cover behind a black Mercedes that was parked on the street. Then Kenshin fell. Otis walked over to him. I remember him telling me that he had a child, and he was explaining to me, man, don't do it. Uh, you know, I got a little girl, and he was telling me all this stuff. And at the time, I'm like, man, you just shot me. You don't understand, like, you know, we don't, you know, we, we don't went to the point of no return now. You just you know, shot me. I'm, I'm sitting up here, a bloody mess. I'm bleeding from the head also, so I'm, I think that I'm shot in the head, but it wasn't a, a, a bullet at all. It was a piece of glass from the car that had lodged in the side of my head. So, but I didn't know it at the time. So I stood over him and I shot him in the groin. Otis said he turned to find English and saw him running away toward the field next to the masjid. And then, shot and bloodied, Amped up on adrenaline, Otis forgot his car was there and started looking for help. When you go through a situation like that, you know, when you're shooting at people and people are shooting at you, you kind of go a little outside of yourself. I'm not going to say out of the body experience, but you kind of get outside of yourself. So I got a little confused for a second. Eventually, Otis came back to his senses. He found his car and he drove home. This was a wild story. But in some ways, it made more sense than the story we had heard about Imam Jamil. Otis had a track record of shooting people with little provocation. He was a hothead, and he didn't have as much to lose as Imam Jamil. Still, something was definitely off about the guy. He'd pled guilty to writing letters to public officials threatening to kill them, unless they accepted his confession and freed Imam Jamil. That's why he was in prison. But, like I said, some powerful people were convinced he was telling the truth. It helped Imam Jamil get access to a new legal process that could, potentially, get him out of prison. 
It took 11 years to get to this sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super-comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It took the judge seven years to reject Imam Jamil's habeas appeal. The one in Tattnall County, Georgia, where it came out that the ankle monitor did not prove Otis Jackson was at home during the shootout. The judge rejected the appeal in 2011. Imam Jamil's lawyers kept at it, though, appealing to higher courts. But I'll just tell you now, all of those habeas appeals were rejected. The odds of an inmate winning any type of release on a habeas claim are very, very slim. But then, in January of 2020, almost two decades after the shootout, a new path opened up for Imam Jamil. New hope for him and his supporters. The Fulton County DA created something called the Conviction Integrity Unit, or the CIU. It's a division within the prosecutor's office that examines cases from the past, looking for wrongful convictions that could be overturned. When the civil rights legend Andrew Young wrote a letter to the Fulton County DA claiming Imam Jamil was innocent, he sent it to the CIU specifically. Otis Jackson was a focus of the letter. Young wrote that Otis matched some eyewitnesses' descriptions of the shooter. Otis was violating his parole, and so he had a motive for shooting the deputies. He had ammunition at home that matched the ammunition used during the shooting. And he had been convicted of violent crimes in the past. It seems like Young's letter influenced the Fulton County DA, because we later learned the CIU was reviewing Imam Jamil's case. And Imam Jamil's supporters in other corners, they focused on Otis too, 
mounting campaigns to try to convince big media organizations, like CNN, to interview him. A coalition of 28 Muslim American organizations sent a letter to the Department of Justice that also made Otis's confession a focus. But to convince the DA's office or the courts, Otis's confession alone would never be enough, especially after all these years. It wouldn't be enough to convince me either. Any good journalist would want to find corroboration for a bombshell like this. So we set out to try to find people who Otis had encountered or spoken to in the aftermath of the shooting. I'm coming down from the adrenaline rush. Now it, the, the, the situation is starting to hit me. When Otis returned to his mom's house, the phone rang. A parole officer was calling to check on him. Otis told the officer he was just getting home from work, but the officer said he still had to mark it as a violation. But Otis's mind was elsewhere. He said he was in pain, bleeding from the gunshot wounds. He called a neighbor, a nurse who lived across the street, to come over and fix him up. And two other women came to lend a hand. A bullet was lodged in Otis's shoulder, and they extracted it, stitched him up. One of the women gave Otis some painkillers. But Advil or Tylenol after a bullet wound? I'm thinking this had to be excruciating. Luckily for me, I just uh, happened to know these people because if I hadn't, I probably would have died. The morning after the shootout, Otis said he gave all the guns he had to his brother, told him he didn't want them because he was on parole. And then he called a reporter at a local TV station. Otis was worried Imam Jamil was going to be arrested for the shooting. You got to understand, when they went, when they started saying that that this guy did it and they were looking for this dude, well, they were looking for him. The first thing that popped in my mind was, damn, man, they're about to arrest the wrong person. I don't want this guy to, to go to jail for something I did. That, that That's not right. When the reporter showed up, Otis said he offered to give him the bloody clothes he had worn during the shootout. But the reporter said, look, if you do that, then I'd have to turn them over to the police. Otis didn't like that idea, so he didn't give the reporter the clothes but he still agreed to an interview. Meanwhile, since Otis had violated his parole, law enforcement came to search his house. And a few weeks later, he was shipped back to Nevada. So that's Otis's story of the aftermath of the shooting. Plenty of leads to chase down, right? First, we went to the block where Otis was staying with his mom back in March of 2000, and we spoke to some of the neighbors. They confirmed that Otis's mother lived there, but they didn't know any nurses who lived nearby in 2000. No corroboration there. Then we got a transcription of an interview with Otis's brother. He said, nah, Otis never gave me any guns. No corroboration there, but maybe that's what anyone would say to protect a brother who gave him a bunch of guns and then confessed to a murder that happened the night before. So next, we tracked down a recording of the local news segment featuring Otis. One of Imam Jamil's supporters gave it to us. They had been monitoring and recording TV news after the shootout. You are watching 11 Alive News at 5.30. As a suspect in the shootings of two deputies fights extradition back to Georgia, old friends paint a different picture of a man accused of murder. He took a community that was infested with prostitution and drugs and drug dealers and he cleaned it up. Good evening again. I'm Otis goes by Silas Muhammad in the segment. Text at the bottom of the screen calls him a friend of Alameen. From what we've heard, when Otis was in Atlanta, he might have stopped by the masjid to make salat a few times. 
But a friend of Alamine, that was probably local TV news stretching the facts a bit. The story was set up to be about someone close to Imam Jamil in the Weston Masjid, who argued Imam Jamil was a peaceful religious leader. I know that Jamil Alamine did not shoot any police officers that night. Would you put your hand on the Koran and say that? Yes, sir, I would. Would you stake your life on it? Yes, sir, I will. The segment buries at the very end what I would consider the most important information from the whole thing. Salas Mohammed says that there are uh, people in this community who revere and respect and love Jamil Abdullah Alamin, and that there are people here who would do anything to protect him. That includes shooting at Fulton County Sheriff's deputies. Dia? Mark, if Silas Mohammed says Alamine didn't pull the trigger, does he know who did? Well, I asked him that, and he said he would not answer for two reasons. He said he fears self-incrimination, and he also respects the code of silence. But he did say he hopes and expects that important information will be revealed during the court process. We played this story back for the reporter. He's retired now. And he told us he didn't remember it. That's understandable. A local TV reporter might do thousands of stories in their career. And so we asked, did he remember Otis telling him off the record and off camera that he had been involved in a recent shooting? No, the reporter said. And if Otis had told him that, he would have remembered. When we asked Otis for his help corroborating his story, asked him who we should try to talk to and if he had suggestions for contacting them, he wasn't much help. Too much time had passed, he said. You're not going to get anywhere. If I were in your shoes, I probably would scrap this story and do something else, maybe a story on dogs, you know, because I'm be honest, man. Like, you're, gonna not, you're not going to have a lot of people willing to talk about the murder of a police officer. I got a laugh out of that one. Yes, interviewing folks about their dogs would be easier than what we're doing. People are not especially willing to share information about a murder they might be even tangentially connected to. But I got the sense that Otis was communicating more than that. Just believe me, he seemed to be saying. This story could move mountains if people only believed. Some things might work like that, but journalism isn't one of them. And for the most part, the legal system isn't either. We uncovered some glaring inconsistencies between Otis's different accounts of what happened on March 16, 2000. The FBI interviewed Otis in Las Vegas a few months after the shootout. According to a summary of the interview, Otis said it all went down during the day. Imam Jamil was there, and when the deputies pulled up, Otis jumped to his defense. There was a fist fight, and then the guns came out, but Imam Jamil didn't get involved. That's a different story than Otis's other accounts. And the shootout definitely happened at night. I just can't trust Otis. And while the Conviction Integrity Unit, or the courts, they might at least consider his story, I don't think they'll ever be able to trust him either. Late in our reporting, we learned that in 2019, in Florida, Otis was called to testify in a different high-profile murder trial over a grisly quadruple murder. He had made another confession. The judge ordered that a psychologist evaluate Otis and look into his mental health history. According to the psychologist's report, back in 2006, Otis showed no symptoms of distress. But in 2008, he made repeated requests for mental health treatment. And when he was placed in solitary confinement, 
he began to report auditory hallucinations. He was hearing voices. Otis was adamant he was not mentally ill, but a different psychologist said his symptoms were consistent with bipolar disorder and delusional disorder. The psychologist who evaluated Otis wrote that Otis's claims about his past were, quote, highly suspect, but that he had the capacity to testify in the Florida case. He is a highly intelligent individual, the report said. One time when I was trying to wrap my head around all of this, I just let my imagination run wild. I started thinking about how some people who hear voices say they're experiencing a broader reality through their mind's ear that the rest of us can't sense. And I thought, wow, what if Otis slash Silas Muhammad slash James Santos keeps confessing the crimes he was there for, but not really there for? Until, and this is where I really let my imagination run wild, by some epiphany, Otis learns to control his powers and emerges from the darkest prisons as a force for good. Otis Jackson is a comic book superhero. Cool origin story, right? No, it doesn't make a lick of sense. But it got me thinking there might be a place in this story about Imam Jamil for a more intentional use of imagination. Imam Jamil was a magnet for people who couldn't distinguish between made-up stories and what was happening before their eyes, whose fantasies would float out into the world and have very real consequences. Otis's may be the most extreme example, but he wasn't the only one. If I can't escape this mythological realm, maybe I should learn to play with it. A departure from the realm of journalism, for sure, but maybe it would do some good. But for now, back to reality. Otis responded to one of our letters a few months ago, but he hasn't called us in months. He never came out and told Johnny, I'm done with these interviews. But on one of their later calls, Otis said this. I'm to a point, man, where really, I'm kind of, I'm kind of tired of talking about it, for real. I've got to a point where I feel like it is what it is, man. i got a release date. They're going to let me out of prison. So I don't really see the, the need to, you know, keep repeating something over and over and over and over and over again. Especially where, when there's no real benefit for me. So why keep doing that, man? I do think that a part of Otis really believes what he's saying. And for some reason, the story took hold in a fragment of his personality. His reality is so real for him, he'd do almost anything to make others see it. But after hours of listening to Otis's voice, I wanted to get back to the documents. And in the thousands of pages we had, there were a few that I needed to spend more time with. Years ago, Imam Jamil recounted his version of what happened the night of the shootout. And I turn there next. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. 
Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At the time of this recording, Imam Jamil Alamin is 79 years old, and he's still in prison a federal prison in Arizona equipped to provide medical care. He got out of ADX Florence because he was sick. It may be obvious by now, but this feels like the time to say it. I wasn't able to interview him. I wrote to him, but I didn't hear back. Imam Jamil didn't testify during his murder trial, But during one of his appeals, the one in Tattano County back in 2007, he gave his account, under oath and on the record, of what happened on March 16, 2000. Imam Jamil said that earlier in the day, hours before the shootout, he had a run-in with some young folks in the neighborhood who were selling drugs. Imam Jamil hated drugs, hated them since his days as Rap Brown. He saw them as a scourge on the black community and part of a government conspiracy to keep a potentially rebellious population sedated. During his testimony, he said the Weston neighborhood near the masjid had been infested with drugs, at least until the brothers, led by him, started exerting their influence. And this had made him some enemies. As evening approached on the night of the shooting, Imam Jamil had dinner with his family at Red Lobster. Afterward, he wanted to check the mail so he drove back to the West End and parked his car near the masjid in the store. He got out of the car, and he was in the empty field next to the masjid, walking towards the back entrance, when he said he heard two pistol shots, and then many more rounds of gunfire. Imam Jamil didn't look back. He said he went into safety mode, thinking the drug dealers were after him. He got low and ran behind the masjid, then he kept running through the neighborhood he knew well. He went in a loop behind houses, through backyards and cuts, until he arrived back at the store that's across the street from the masjid. The gunfire had stopped and he didn't see anyone else around. He got in his Mercedes and he drove off. 
Imam Jamil said he initially intended to drive home. But then, thinking the drug dealers were after him, he decided instead to go to Lowndes County, Alabama, the location of a smaller Muslim community he founded. An attorney for the state, arguing against Imam Jamil's appeal, asked why he didn't call the police. Imam Jamil said the masjid had a, quote, security arrangement. Instead of calling the police, the first people he would have spoken to would have been men on the masjid's security force who were supposed to be on duty that night. Over the years, this is not one that has haunted you or that you think about or... No. Mm -mm. Brett Zembrick, the Atlanta Police Department detective who investigated the shootout, he was one of the first people I interviewed. A lot of what Brett said was in my head when I reviewed Imam Jamil's testimony. I don't have any doubts about this case. I never had any doubts about this case. It was a case that, you know... These guys got shot. They just happened to be wearing badges and guns, and this is who shot him. And he just happened to be someone that had some notoriety. There's absolutely no no thought whatsoever that there's somebody else involved, that there's, you know, a conspiracy to get HREP. Who, who wins there? I mean, what was he doing that was so, you know, dramatic that we needed to get him off the street at any cost? I, I don't get it. So... Um, you know, based on what I know about the incident, what I've been told, what I see, and what the test results are, I have no doubt in my mind that, you know, Jamil Alameen shot these two deputies, killed one of them. I don't think for a minute that he needs a, another trial or, you know, another chance at, you know, doing good. I, I think what happened happened, and... The punishment fits the crime, and I'm glad he's doing the time. When I left Brett's house, I thought, I can't really argue with much of what he said. It became even harder for me to believe that Imam Jamil had a confrontation with drug dealers that ultimately blossomed into a vast conspiracy. A conspiracy that's been kept secret all these years. But after I looked more closely at the trial transcripts and the documents we got from the DA's office... And after I talked to people who were part of the masjid and who lived in the West End, I became convinced that there was more to what happened that night than what was revealed in court, or even in all the documents we'd obtained. When I asked Imam Jamil's defense attorneys, Tony Axum and Jack Martin, for their theories of what happened, it only confirmed my suspicion. Here's Axum. Can't tell you that. I don't know the answer to that. And I said that with a smile. I have no theories. Have no theories. Can't answer. I don't know the answer to that question. I wish I did. My memory's totally blank. <laughs> that might be one of the most entertaining no-comment responses that I've ever gotten in my career. Jack Martin was more helpful. I seriously think that it's possible, not just possible, but likely, that... Alameen was confronted by these officers and there was a lot of yelling and screaming and that somebody a supporter in the community, maybe it's Otis Jackson, maybe somebody else, saw that and thought, uh-oh, Alameen's in trouble and did something stupid. Alameen was uh, reluctant to... to present a case 
forcefully that somebody else did, and he was trying to protect that person. He thought that would involve him, and it would to some extent, but it would it would defeat the murder charge. Um, so I understood that. So I don't think we pressed that as hard as we sh perhaps should have, but we let the jury sort of linger out there over that issue. We let the jury sort of linger out there over that issue, Martin said. I'm not bringing in all this information from Martin. It's just another way to raise doubt about whether Imam Jamil shot the two deputies. It's something I've heard on and off the record, that maybe someone else was there. That the West End was the kind of neighborhood where people confronted trouble with guns blazing. Everybody knew he was a dangerous person. And, and, and my friends just said, hey, whatever you do, don't get in the car with that motherfucker. Because they know you'll come back with a murder case. That's on the next episode of Radical. Radical is a production of Campside Media, Tenderfoot TV, and iHeart Podcasts. Radical was reported and written by Johnny Kaufman and me, Mosi Secret. Johnny Kaufman is our senior producer. Sheba Joseph is our associate producer. Editing by Eric Benson, Johnny Kaufman, Emily Martinez, and Matt Scher. Fact-checking by Sophie Hurwitz, Kaylin Lynch, and Layla Dose. Original music by Kyle Murdoch and by Ray Murray of Organized Noise. Sound design and mixing by Kevin Seaman. Recording by Ewan Lydtrum-Ewan and Sheba Joseph. Campside Media's operations team is Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Aaliyah Papes, Destiny Dingle, and Sabina Mera. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. For Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. The executive producers at iHeart Podcasts are Matt Frederick and Alex Williams, with additional support from Trevor Young. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.